Heidi, I'm Frankie. And I'm Daniel. And I'm Zach. Welcome to Propagated Podcast. super badass intro so this is our friend zach we're so excited to have our first guest he is awesome he is badass he is super cool and um i I don't know was that good enough (laughs) 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 i don't really know i I I think you covered almost all the bases there i feel like no thank you so much for having me here i'm very excited to be here we're so excited to have you do you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship with the green world Sure. Uh, yeah, I went to Clemson University for horticulture, and since then, have been a bartender, <laughs> like like most college graduates in America these days. <laughs> but have kept a steady love for uh, for the green world since then. Um, I consider myself, if not an avid plant collector, then at least a passionate plant collector. Have you read The Drunken Botanist? I have not read The Drunken Botanist. I believe that I heard y'all reference. Yeah, we talk about it like every episode. (laughs) I still haven't read The Drunken Botanist. Okay, wow. Eventually, I'm going to be in trouble for that. Well, anyways, I'm quitting the podcast. Notice immediately. (laughs) It sounds like we all have homework to do. Yes, everyone listening. The two week notice. You get this last podcast, and then we're done. (laughs) So, done. So, Frankie is leaving us. This is this is my one thing y'all have to do for me to stay. Yeah, it's it's so good. I I think it's so fascinating too the relationship between plants and alcohol, and that's awesome that you have those two things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of my areas of study in Clemson was um, uh, psychotropic and narcotic plants and nice. uh, their role in um, uh, plant medicine and magic. Cool. Today and uh, you know kind of splitting off into ethnobotany, which. Clemson is I love I love Clemson and I got a great education there. I love the uh, five or six years that I spent mm-hmm. in Clemson. <laughs> <laughs> Heard. But it is it is a bit of a conservative program. And uh, so uh, yeah, that, that put me as a bit of an outlier. I actually just downloaded a book called The Rebel's Apothecary and it's all about um, magic mushrooms and health-related mushrooms and cannabis and CBD and all that good stuff. Mm. It sounds like something you might be interested in. <laughs> Is that a uh, Paul Stamets book? <gasps> I don't know. <laughs> it's on my Kindle, and if I don't see the cover, I don't remember. <laughs> Let me Google it. <laughs> I'm going to need you to get on your shit real quick, Frankie. <laughs> Listen, I can remember about three things, and that's the capacity I have. <laughs> Jenny Sansucci? Sansauchi? I don't okay. know. I'm not familiar with that. Hmm. It's really good though so far. <laughs> uh, Paul Stamets, he wrote a, a bunch of books about. Um, he's a very famous mycologist, and he wrote a bunch of books about mushrooms. And cool. one of the things that I found interesting about his take, and one thing that I think it, it kind of separates the mycological world from the horticultural world, is that they fully embrace everything uh that mushrooms could be used for including uh including the magic mushrooms you know they don't shy away from that at all they fully embrace it i love that 
damn guys, I really fucked up. I was doing research on fungus today, thinking that's what I was going to report on. That's just immediately where we went to rub it in your face. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you, Zach. I know we've been friends for so long, but I had no idea you had a horticulture degree. That's so cool. I do, yeah. I don't think I really knew that either until reasonably recently. This is so exciting. That's one reason that I've enjoyed... um, listening to y'all's podcast so much is it's kind of put me back in touch with that side of myself that I haven't really exercised as much in the past several years. So it's definitely inspired me to uh, you know, be a little bit better of a plant parent. I love that. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> it's everything I want. That is it's the just... awesome part about houseplants, though, is that, I mean, I'm also a bartender as well as Zach. And it like gardening and like all a lot of stuff like gardening and farming is a daytime activity, and most of my life is consumed in the nighttime because I work mm. from nine yeah. p.m. until three or four a.m. So it's hard to like keep a garden sometimes, especially when you need to go out early in the morning and tend to stuff. But house plants are dope because. They're not meant to be where they are, and they just kind of have to adjust to what you're going to yeah. give them anyway, so it's prime. You know what we should do? We should do an episode on night-blooming plants. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I'd love that. Dude, the orchid cactus. I don't have one, and I want one so bad because they're so pretty. I have it's one. I'm, it's actually my giveaway pile. You want it? Oh, I definitely want it if it's in okay. giveaway pile. I'll set it aside. I also bought more plants today like an idiot. I don't know what my room's about to be <laughs> What are you I'm up to, to? Like 56? <laughs> I'm literally going to have to add shelving into my bedroom to accommodate the plants that I just bought and the plants that are still outside. Same It seems like anytime Daniel and I go shopping (laughs) together for any reason whatsoever. Literally, even if it's just the grocery store. (laughs) 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 Look what I found. We're just going to get some Oreos at the grocery store and we end up coming home with five plants a piece. Zach and I did that one day though. We were going to the grocery store just to get something that we were missing for dinner when I was staying with them for a second. And came back home, like half of the cart was full of plants. <laughs> and there was like two things from the, from the grocery store that we actually needed. Yeah, sounds yeah, great. influences. Really gotten me into that habit. <laughs> I would say I'm sorry, but I'm happy I have another addict in my life. No, I love it. It's great. Uh, but yeah, everywhere that I go now that has any kind of plant section at all, I find myself uh, you know, veering off and saying, ooh, I'm just going to take a little look here and see what they got. Just a peek. What can hurt? (laughs) But yeah, it is getting a little ridiculous for me. (laughs) I mean, you've got a lot more space than I do. I'm literally going to, I'm grasping for straws at this point. Because my roommate also has probably close to 50 plants in the rest of the house. So she's got all those windows taken. And she started, like, she's had more plants than me for years and years. And now I'm just sitting here like, well, I only have my bedroom and when you get up to close to 70 plants in one room of your house, it starts to look a little bit ridiculous. Like a jungle. Uh, but, you know, just like everywhere in western North Carolina, it there's very little transition between summer and fall. And it goes from 80 degrees to 40 degrees in mm-hmm. the span of a day. And so I've had to bring in all the plants that I've collected over the summer. And... Now I have to find space for them in my house, mm-hmm. which means that I am going to be building a lot of plant shelves over the yeah. next week. 
I live in a studio apartment with one other person, and you can already see how full of plants my house is. <laughs> and so I had to go through this week and make a giant giveaway pile, and although it broke my heart a little bit, I'm feeling better about the winter. There are some goat <laughs> plants in there. Yeah, I didn't know that this was a thing to have giveaway piles of plants. I really love that idea. Yeah, oh, I still need to give you, I gave, when she came to my house just for a brief second the other day, and, well, we hung out for a second and had drinks and stuff. But we had apple cider mimosas, and it was delicious. Apple cider mimosas Love are the that. way to go. It's the best way to do a mimosa. I'm trying to, like, opinion. gently bring Daniel into fall so that he doesn't freak out too much. You know, oh, it's a hard right transition. It. It's a hard transition for me. <laughs> I don't appreciate the cooling weather at all. I don't mind fall. It's winter that I hate. Yeah. But fall is just that, like, reminder that we're going into winter very quickly and i don't i'm not appreciative i love all the seasons for different reasons but uh oh, fall is definitely my favorite i think i did just make a point i love all the seasons for different for reasons. different reasons <laughs> God, i think i just Dr. made a gas Seuss station uh, plaque <laughs> that's trademarked in case anybody wants to use it <laughs> copyright 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 <laughs> oh yeah this morning i made um Pumpkin spice mimosas. <gasps> they were very good. I will. I mean, I don't have any beef yeah. with pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice is actually a really nice flavor. It's delicious. I've made myself at least three hot toddies in the last couple days. Hot toddies are that. also that shit. I love a good hot toddy. I sincerely believe that they're not a drink. They're just medicine. I mean, you got cloves, you got honey, you got cinnamon, you got nutmeg, you got lemon, you got whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey was used mm. as a medicinal treatment for ever. That's what I'm saying. Like since its beginnings. Shit, I still use whiskey as a medicinal treatment. Hell yeah. <laughs> Cheers to that. I don't know if I should be using it as much for my mental health. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> okay. All right, so in the idea of clinging on to summer as long as I possibly can, <laughs> I'm going to talk about kudzu which is a plant and a child of the summer for sure. Well, you got until 9 a.m. tomorrow. You know what? You know what? That was rude. That was some rude shit right there. I well, you, your last messages are summer or right now. I just literally saw everything and Daniel start to drop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Apologies. Anyways. Kudzu really has a kind of really cool and rich history in the United States, especially in the southern portion of the United States. And so, like, if you if you are from here, from the southeast, or even parts of the Midwest, or if you've traveled through this area, there's a 100% chance you've, like, noticed kudzu in some way or another, whether it be, like, a conscious thing or not. But it's... Probably the most infamous invasive plant in the South. Mm-hmm. And you know, part of what makes it infamous is its history and the fact that it has become a household name. Like you don't talk, you can't talk to any Southerner who doesn't have some kind of relationship with kudzu at some point or another. It, just, it doesn't happen. And it's even gone as far as to like be intertwined deeply into the culture here. We talk about folk stories, including kudzu novels being written around the premise of kudzu, 
And, you know, like, there are a bunch of southern businesses, if you look around the south, that use kudzu in their name just because of how prevalent it is here. And so I think that it's, it would be kind of naive to think that it hasn't done more than just, you know, hold up the banks of our country roads, you know? I think that it's a kind of cool premise to think about kudzu in a way that isn't just the negativity behind it. Evil. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of evil. I'm not, it is kind of an evil plant, but there's a cool story behind it is what I'm driving at. Are you trying to be positive this episode? I'm trying to reframe, <laughs> trying to reframe my image, Frankie. I'm trying to live, I'm trying to live in the last moments of summer right now. I'm happy about it. Don't try and steal that from me. Halloween Too is late. coming up. Maybe it is fun to talk about evil plants. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe that's what I'll be for, maybe that's what I'll be for Halloween this year. I'll just go cut down a bunch of kudzu and come as the kudzu <laughs> That's the thing, though. It's like, okay, so if you've never seen kudzu before, like, when it grows on telephone poles and, like, lots of things, it literally looks like a monster climbing over the mountains at you mm. made of greenery, which oh, is kind of yeah. cool and inspiring, but... I have a quote. James Dickey was his name. In the 60s, he equated kudzu to a green, mindless, unkillable ghost. Oh, my gosh. Mm. So literally, it's been heralded as a monstrous plant for years and years. And I mean, part of that is literally in the throes of summer, you can sit down and watch kudzu grow. And I know that sounds excessive, but it grows up to a foot a day. Wait, 12 what? inches in a day, you can see that movement. Seriously? Yeah, you can watch kudzu move if, you, if you're willing to sit still and watch it for an hour. And... People have even gone as far as to say, like, not only can you watch the plant move and grow, there are people that say if you sit down in, like, a quiet place, you can hear it growing. I've never personally experienced that, but I think that I've, even though I grew up in a very rural area, I was still next to a road and I was next to a creek. So I've never personally experienced that, but I have seen quotes about people being able to hear a like a notable noticeable sound in like a grove of kudzu and that is a grandma thing to say right there i mean <laughs> fair enough fair enough that is full on grandma what sitting in here in the kudzu sitting and listening to the kudzu yeah <laughs> snapping beans listening to the kudzu grow this is who i'm gonna be though like you can already hear me <laughs> saying this <laughs> oh yeah i mean you're not gonna be the grant the southern grandma that has a glass of sweet tea you're gonna be the southern grandma that's out there in the middle of the night with a glass of hot tea or a cup of <laughs> a hot, hot tea, toddy yeah sitting out there your hot tea with a splash of whiskey and it's sitting out there <laughs> listening to the kudzu grow in the middle of the night literally though that's i mean could, could you imagine a better future i mean that just brings me so much hope for the future <laughs> no nah, i mean fingers crossed that means that you're going to be the grandpa that is sitting in the kitchen drinking tequila and screaming out the back door for the kudzu to shut the hell up. <laughs> Big <laughs> facts. I have been read to filth in that moment because that is the most accurate thing I have ever heard. For fuck's sake. That is amazing. The kids are going to love you, though. Oh, uh, oh so good. So, a lot of the current day ideology around kudzu is obviously that it's a noxious weed 
and that it needs to be gotten rid of by any means necessary in a lot of places. But that's not the way that Kudzu started at all. This plant began its journey as the miracle vine. Literally, people sang its praises all over the place to try and proliferate kudzu. And some of that started, or a lot of that started, at the 1876 Centennial Exposition, which was in Philadelphia. And that was the 100th birthday of our country. And they invited all of these other countries to come and show off their culture and their wildlife and the nature around, which was really kind of cool. Um, and that's how people kind of first got the idea that kudzu was and a plant to even have around because it's kind of a pretty plant when it's not yeah. overgrowing entire buildings and <laughs> foam poles and forests. It's got a very pretty and fragrant flower and it grows really fast. So a lot of people in the United States were kind of using it as porch cover and they just keep it trimmed. But within a year in the summertime, you have an entire front porch covered and shaded by this plant, which is kind of cool. And that was part of the earliest ideals of kudzu being introduced into the United States itself. So early on, like I said, most of the practical applications for kudzu were all ornamental. And that was true for the United States, but when you look at the Japanese and Chinese cultures with kudzu is very different. So kudzu, it's the same kudzu that we have here. There's no difference really. But in, especially China, they were using it as an edible starch uh, and adding fiber to their diet with the kudzu roots. And they were even using them as holistic medicines, which I thought was kind of cool. Wait, so, so kudzu roots are edible? Kudzu roots are edible. They're tuberous they're similar to a potato they're they're ground starch i never knew that i believe yeah. the the greens are also edible the greens really? are also edible but um the new shoots are supposed to be really sweet and then the leaves are supposed to be a good salad filler. if the apocalypse happens we have it down we'll just eat yeah, I mean, that is one definite <laughs> like in the south that is one way to keep yourself maybe alive when other things don't work i mean hey if you live in the south write this down <laughs> <laughs> In a, in a couple years, you're going to be eating a lot of kudzu. Oh, God. You can also make paper with Depressing. kudzu. So. Depressing. Hopefully more than two years. Jesus. Jesus. How fast oh, can I'm the fall of our playing. society happen? I'm just playing. I don't think any of us believe we actually have that long. <laughs> oh, you know go. what, Zach? We definitely needed another cynic on this show it was just me for a long time i'm glad i'm glad there's somebody else here my positivity is just like blah, 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 everywhere. i'm just uh i'm just i'm just saying what i wrote on facebook so <laughs> Ooh, we don't talk about the f word here spicy. <laughs> getting spicy up in here. so i guess i would we'll talk just a little bit more about some of the properties that are taken that are used in Chinese culture with kudzu specifically so in ancient China one of the most common uses of the plant was in treating alcoholism which I thought was kind of odd 
Hmm. And hmm. there are even studies being done today about whether kudzu could be used as an, an aid for alcohol cessation because essentially when you eat a bunch of kudzu, it increases your blood flow. And when your blood flow is increased, obviously the amount of alcohol you're capable of consuming is decreased because it's hitting your system faster. So it's not going to end the urge to drink alcohol, I suppose, but it is going to reduce how much you're capable of drinking. So they're working on making medicines that might be able to make mm-hmm. drinking less pleasing because you get drunk too fast. But like hmm. I said, these are all just fledgling studies and there aren't a whole lot of them yet so there's no way to verify any of these claims as of right now all right let's just go ahead and get to like the body of the kudzu story so originally you have these two people charles and lily please so in the 1920s they discovered that their livestock really enjoyed kudzu and so they planted a bunch of kudzu and promoted its use for foraging animals like because it's high in fiber it's very similar to other grasses i think it was alfalfa grass maybe that it was most similar to so nutritious Mm. good for animals works out well way cheaper and obviously grows prolifically and they tried very hard these two to proliferate kudzu from their farm they didn't do an amazing job They only got about 10,000 acres of southern farmland dedicated to growing kudzu. And that was by 1934. So in essentially over a decade, they'd only got 10,000 acres, which sounds like a lot. But compared to where kudzu is today, that's really not that much at all. But part of what happened through their promoting kudzu, I suppose was a change in the public eye of kudzu in general. So literally right around the time they had gotten these 10,000 acres sown, the government comes in, specifically the Soil Conservation Service, and looks at how quickly kudzu grows and how large and vast the root systems are for kudzu. And so they're like, okay, I see that you guys are using this as livestock fodder right now, but maybe we should take a step back and look at what we can do for all of these people who have destroyed their soil by doing monocultures for Mm -hmm. decades and decades. Couple, like literally part of what led us into the Great Depression. And they're like, okay, we can probably use this to keep all, like to keep these dust storms from happening because it's a very hardy plant. And so you have this guy named Hugh Hammond Bennett, and he's touted as the father of soil conservation. He was literally the leader of the Soil Conservation Services for the United States. And he was quoted as saying, what, short of a miracle, can you call this plant? And this led to like overcome some of that lingering public suspicion that, the, that was happening because people weren't really picking up on this whole kudzu thing because it takes a lot of land yeah it's only really good for fodder but it's also good at healing the soil and the department of agriculture went as far as to pay eight dollars an acre for people to grow kudzu on their property wow oh gosh so in the 30s 
I imagine $8 an acre adds up pretty quickly yeah. when you're probably not getting much more than that for hardcore farming an acre of your land. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're getting more than that, but maybe probably not a whole lot. And if the yeah. soil's already dead, why wouldn't you take $8 an acre yeah, over nothing, right. you know? Yeah. So the government definitely played a pretty large role in getting kudzu established. But part of what we need to understand is that while the government wasn't misguided at that time and didn't really think about future ramifications, there is a lot behind kudzu that is the reason they were so excited about it. Like, mm -hmm. like we talked about before, the roots of this plant are obscenely large. And I would, when I was doing my research, the largest one that is recorded was 400 pounds and what? six feet is what, what the tap root looked like. A root? What? A root. Wow. Absolutely <gasps> obscenely massive, this thing. So, like, that's cool. I like, guess. more than a human. <laughs> Literally more than most humans, for sure. Um, but also, on top of that, it's able to fix nitrogen levels in the, so in the soil because kudzu is technically a legume. And legumes cater to a certain bacteria in its roots that increase nitrogen in the soil. It's able Wait, to really? pull nitrogen out of the air and repurpose it into the soil. Is that also peanuts? Because peanuts are a legume, mm -hmm. right? Peanuts are also, yes. Same, same bit. Yeah, Sweet. on the, pretty much all the beans, anything in the bean family. I can tell you, you know, one way that I used to try to uh, make extra cash is to um, help people out with landscaping. And a lot of times that was coming into people's property and trying to remove kudzu Ugh. from their lawns, which is next to impossible. And part oh. of that is because if you do not get every little tiny piece of that root out, then it starts all over again. Uh, oh yeah, we're gonna talk about that a little God. bit in a second. I'm pretty sure it's in these notes about how literally you can cut all the kudzu down. It'll be gone for years, several years of time and not repopulate at all. But if you left any portion of the taproot, left anywhere any of that kudzu was growing, it can repopulate itself off of its taproot again. Which so you is gotta dig out wild. six feet, 400 pound taproot. Yeah, I mean, let's be, <laughs> oh realistic. let's be realistic. That was definitely the most extreme. Oh. But the, the taproots are very deep. I mean, it's still, even when it's not quite six feet, even if it's two feet down, that's still a that's, that's a, lot. Still a fucking adventure of a thing to dig out. That fucking sucks. Yeah. So obviously the government using this plant and paying people to use this plant had a large amount to do with the spread of this plant in the South. But we have to talk about one particular person. He's where the bulk of my research went because it was really fun to read about this guy. And his name is Channing Cope. And Channing Cope is a wild motherfucker. This is, get like, buckle in, because this is a wild ride of a story. It's a whole fucking lot. Um, I'm buckled. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, in my personal opinion, this guy is the reason that kudzu is as prolific as it is. So this guy is kind of a jack-of-all-trades, you know? Like, he was a war veteran... He was a radio personality, a newspaper columnist, a farmer, an author, 
and also an ardent conservationist for all for all the farms especially and this guy literally went out and preached the glories of fucking kudzu essentially which is really fucking wild can you imagine somebody doing that these days oh no absolutely not it'd be rough people try to reclaim kudzu and talk about how it's great in salads and how you can do shit with it it's more i feel like it's more of like a saving the earth thing than like a Right. I guess it was a saving the earth thing then too. Then too. It was just, just different life. All light. different perspectives. Just short sighted. <laughs> but I think that to give you a little perspective on how I guess flowery and extra he was about the way he talked about kudzu. Obviously, we all know that the South was covered in cotton for far longer than it should have been. But <sighs> one of his quotes was cotton is not king here anymore kudzu is king literally that's a <laughs> direct quote from him and with that proclamation came his nickname which is the king of kudzu or the kudzu king rather i'm trying to decide if i like that or i hate it i mean i'm on the fence about it i think like <laughs> i said we're gonna talk more about this guy's life but he's an interesting motherfucker so it's fun to read about him, but I, I, it's, it's, it's a lot. People literally compared him to like an old timey Southern pastor all the time. But instead of talking about God, he talked about kudzu. It was like a thing with him. If I ever get this way, will you just be like, "Hey, yo, Frankie, there are other plants in the world, <laughs> 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 like spider plants. This is your first house plant, your only first house plant." <laughs> You never have anything else. <laughs> propagate. The, I mean, they propagate themselves. Essentially, I mean, they so. really do, honestly. <laughs> so that's probably the first sign of danger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Channing Cook. I couldn't find a whole lot about his earlier life because there just isn't that much. There just isn't that much about it. But I did find that he bought a farm in the south of Atlanta and... <laughs> Like we were talking about briefly earlier, his farm was plagued by the decades of abuse that many farms were. And this is part of how he found kudzu and its regenerative properties. And he used it again as animal fodder and erosion control. And that's when he kind of decided that kudzu was going to be a cornerstone of rebuilding southern farms. Because we had destroyed the soil at that point, be it tobacco, cotton... Uh, what's the other one? Sweet peas? Uh, I know. Garbanzo beans. Is, that's a more, that's a more coastal, coastal southern thing, but we had destroyed the soil. So, he decided that he was going to go around and try and get other people on board with it. Another quote from him is, The South believes the Almighty had its cottoned-out gullies and hillsides in mind when he designed this wonder crop, kudzu. We call it Earth's best friend. Mm. Mm. Man, that guy is real big into kudzu. Oh, yeah. It's a a whole fucking thing. It's it's (laughs) a lot. It's just hard to think of anybody being that passionate about a plant other than maybe, you know, hemp or cannabis these days. Well... 
Okay, but here's my thing is that I argue the side that people who are gung-ho on hemp being the cure-all are the same way. Because oh, absolutely. like absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, One, there is no cure-all no plant is a cure-all just like get that in your heads now over cropping and monocultures are bad just stop <laughs> yeah there's no reason yeah. for it absolutely i mean except to make my tequila i'm just kidding I'm just <laughs> well we're kidding. gonna save the agave that's the literally the whole point of this podcast we only started it to save agave <laughs> <laughs> yeah so cope literally used his farm as an experiment of the times and had literally everything from u.s government officials to foreign dignitaries coming to visit his farm to look at how well kudzu was doing and how it was fixing the soil this man channing coke this is the part that gets me the most i just i just can't believe that this exists well, I don't know. I, don't, I actually haven't done enough research. I don't know. I don't know that it still exists. I hope it doesn't. But it did exist. This man went as far as to create the Kudzu Club of America. For 1943, I feel like this is a pretty decent number. It had a membership of 20,000 people. Wait, whoa. Plant Club yeah. of 20,000 people? In 1943. <laughs> what? And you want this club, their whole bit was just spreading kudzu. That's what they wanted. They had competitions to see who could plant the most kudzu. Okay, first of all, I need to know what the member jackets look like. That's like my one and only question. I will try and find that. <laughs> I will try and find that and so we can post it on the Instagram because that, that sounds pretty. That's, that's, that's oh, a good no, thing that's, for the Instagram. That's about 20,000 motherfuckers that are laughing from the grave right now. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, we won. Oh, we won. We won big time. Oh, no. So this oh. fucking club. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I kind of want to just make a theme song for it now because it's like really, really fun. <laughs> the KCMA, okay, goddamn. Um, but their whole goal, literally, they wanted to see a million plants. Not, nah, that's, I misspoke. They wanted to see a million acres of kudzu planted in Georgia alone. In one state, they wanted a million acres. And their goal after that was 8 million acres in the South. Job well done. Yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, okay. You can hear this plant growing because it grows so fucking fast. And all of a sudden you're like, yes, plant more. That sounds great. Like, what? What is the logic behind this? Well, I mean, also, I think that there's a little bit of a time separation or time dilation you have to consider as well when you're looking at stuff like this. Because this was back in the 1940s. And people who owned farms were spending, that was their job. You know, that was their full-time not that that doesn't still exist today, but that was their full-time job. So keeping that kudzu in control was something they probably did on the daily. That's fair. So they would have patches of kudzu that weren't overgrown and taking stuff over because it was under control with constant trimming and regulation of where Because it that was your responsibility to your land, which we don't have anymore. Exactly. And that's not the same because all the land, most larger farms, especially in the South, have been sectioned off into almost nothing now. Yeah. Um, 
But, okay, one more thing about the KC of A. One more thing about the Kudzu Club of America. <laughs> oh, my God. So they, they obviously have their annual <laughs> they have their annual meetings and contests to see who could plant the most kudzu. But they also had fucking kudzu queens. They had no. pageants. No. They Stop. had pageants. Stop. I'm quitting the podcast again. To elect kudzu queens. <laughs> fucking obscene. I can't. <sighs> I just can't even with it. <laughs> I just, I would love to see the crown that they gave to the kudzu queen, you know, just like a wreath of kudzu. Oh my god, slowly, yeah. Oh, okay. Not I'm even slowly, that. but like quickly strangled the, the winner Dude. of that. <laughs> also, I don't know if you guys have ever walked through a patch of kudzu or not, but that shit's hairy. And I'm convinced that, I don't know, maybe I'm just allergic to it, but I've never walked through kudzu and not left feeling itchy. Uh, I've never yeah, tried. Yeah, you know what I want to know? How many kudzu queens were there? Like, how long running was the pageant of kudzu queen? <laughs> like, do people still claim, like, oh, I was kudzu queen of 1782? Or, no, I mean, I'm way too far back. Yeah, maybe it was a little <laughs> early. Frankie, but okay. Wait, wh- when did you say kudzu started? 19, I mean, it was what, the 1940s, 40? so it's very likely that there could still be some surviving kudzu queens out there. Ooh, okay, hey, if you're listening and you're a kudzu queen, hit us up because we want to interview you. Or if you're like <laughs> the grandchild or great-grandchild of a kudzu queen that Ooh, might kudzu be okay royalty. with coming on the mm-hmm. show, mm-hmm. let us fucking know because we will interview them all day long. I also want to take a second to make sure that it's obvious that not everyone, even in those days, agreed with Cope's role and importance in the spread of kudzu. There is an author named Limke. Limke described Cope's work as a carnival of hype and hucksterism. So obviously not everybody agrees that he... I still think that Cope was the reason we see so much kudzu, but not everybody agrees to that. There's also a lot of people from back when he was around and hanging out that talked about his very obvious overconsumption of booze so when the more booze apparently he would drink the more loudly he would proclaim the miracles of kudzu same <laughs> so i feel like that's fun that's fun <laughs> last thing last thing about channing cope and kudzu in general and we'll move on we have to talk about how channing cope died because it is a lot and I am kind of in love with it, as morbid as that is. It seems very fitting. Mm-hmm. So obviously Cope had dedicated his entire life to kudzu. And this is even after the government had literally spent time and money telling people that they would come onto their farm for free and remove kudzu at that point. Like trying, mm-hmm. it had been labeled as, as a noxious weed, and they were trying very much to get rid of it he had grown kudzu over practically the entirety of his 700 acre farm and this motherfucker refused to let anybody cut any of his fucking kudzu like absolutely totally against it wouldn't let anybody come in Hmm. but according to his friend philip cohen cope's death even relays itself back to kudzu this is how dedicated this man was this fucking vine 
So because Cope refused to allow anybody to come in and clean any of this up, the fields in the 60s became a popular hideout for teenagers because what else do you do when you're a teenager in a rural community? You find somewhere to hide to drink and smoke weed. So that was happening on his property all the time. And this old-ass motherfucker was like, no, you teenagers are not going to be on my property drinking and smoking weed. So he would <laughs> run them off all the time. He'd like go out into his fields and run them out of his fields. Mm-hmm. Apparently one time he decided that he was going to go run some kids out of his field, made it a few steps off of his porch, running after these kids, trying to get them off of his property and had a heart attack and died running towards his fucking kudzu fields to kick teenagers off of his land. So Channing Coat, start to fucking finish, dedicated to his goddamn kudzu. Here's to you, Channing. Fucking get it. I mean, I'm kind of there for it. Fuck Kudzu, but Channing Cope, you're kind of a fucking icon as far as the Kudzu world goes. Here, here, Channing Cope, <laughs> the Kudzu King. The Kudzu King. I do think that it's kind of interesting, though, that, um, you know, our, our attitude toward Kudzu has kind of shifted a little bit, it seems like. Um, you know, here in Asheville, there is a restaurant called Blue Kudzu. Uh, and, yeah. you know, growing up, kudzu is not something that you would ever want your business to be associated yeah, with. Yeah, no, I'm to be you're never going to idealize kudzu. No, yeah. never. And now in, um, you know, this this all happened in the, the 1930s and 40s. So essentially in two generations, I feel like we've kind of grown to look at kudzu. Uh, we've sort of romanticized it a little bit. And yeah. now think of it as something uh, that we all, all have a shared experience with. Yeah. Now, it's definitely curious looking at the cultural implications behind kudzu, too. Because even back then, I mean, it took forever for kudzu to get any kind of upstart that would have caused what it is today. Because, like I said, originally it was all ornamental. People were taking care of it in small little plots in front of their front porches to keep the sun out. Oh, that's crazy. So it was never spreading at that point. And then you see the government come in, spread it like wildfire on that on their side, literally Ugh. covering oh, up wow. covering up the sides of interstates, going along cause cut like going along uh, country roads and stuff that they were cutting at this point. Because this is the nineteen forties. This is when most of our interstates and 1930s to the 1940s when most of our interstates and country roads were being built mm -hmm. and they were eroding like a motherfuck because they were just cutting out the sides of mountains and out the sides of hills and out the sides of whatever so part of the way to control that erosion in their minds was kudzu because it just grew so fast and was easy but the long-term effects of any of the noxious plants like that are what end up fucking people. We over. gotta stop trying to solve the problem in front of us, and when we or, or, or when we're trying to solve the problem in front of us, in front <clears throat> when we're trying to solve the problem in front of us, <laughs> think about the potential futures we might have as well that might influence our whatever we're doing to try to fix quote unquote this you know yeah absolutely you can fuck a lot of shit up trying to being short-sighted about what you're doing and it very much like you said earlier frankie uh you know people are always looking for a fix-all mm. to uh you know problems that they might have 
environmental and ecological. And a lot of times it seems like the solutions that we come up to to fix those problems are more harmful than the problem itself. Totally. And solutions tend to get fucked up when put in the government's hands. Just saying. Also that. I mean, I don't think we're going to find too many people in our world that don't agree with that statement. I mean, things that help to shade your porch when handed to government is like, you know, there's so much nuance, especially in plants. Ends up eating your farm. Yeah, it ends up eating your farm. And like, it, it has to be applied to the place where the solution is happening. Like, if you are a farmer taking care of your crops, you can handle kudzu because you're taking care of your land. When you put it on the roadside, eh, goodbye, it's out of your hands now. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, not to take the government side, obviously, but when you look at kudzu in China and Japan, they have, I mean, it's natural there. It, it, it wasn't imported yeah. in. So they have insects and animals that naturally consume this on a consistent basis. So you don't see groves of kudzu in china or japan the way that you do here because there's just no there are no natural predators for kudzu here you have bugs that'll eat on it but you don't have a bug specifically evolved from the time kudzu's existed to eat this one specific plant and keep it knocked back instead you have groves of kudzu growing and taking over entire towns like I mean, you can literally drive through the South and see some old decrepit oh, towns totally grown over with kudzu. But even uh, even driving around when I was a young kid in the upstate of South Carolina, you know, you drive past, uh, you'd be driving down the highway and you'd look on the side of the road and you would just see this essentially green wall of kudzu that has swallowed up everything that it grows around. And even then, you know, I knew that it was something bad just because of the folklore and uh, all the talk surrounding it. But there was still something that was kind of tragically beautiful about it that, you know, I will always associate with my childhood. Yeah. I mean, the plant itself is an attractive plant. It has huge yeah. leaves. The, yeah. per- the blooms are big blooms. They're bright purple. It's really pretty. And the blooms smell fucking fantastic. That's like part of the natural native scent of the South at this point is that sickly sweet kudzu bloom smell that usually happens midsummer. Scent scent of the South. Sweet summer of her and her. (laughs) (laughs) I really just want you to edit a clip of that song. A clip of that song right there because that seems like a great well, Zachy boy, it is your turn. Yay! We're so excited. What are you going to tell us about? Yeah, I, I, I am really excited about this because this is something that I've kind of worked on all summer and <laughs> in continuing to work on into the fall. And it's something that I've really enjoyed doing. So I wanted to talk a little bit about mosses. <gasps> Fuck mosses! Yeah, moss. yeah. Those little, oh. little tiny plants that everybody knows. And yes. everybody ignores. But they are actually a spectacular little plant. And so I want to talk a little bit about them and talk about what makes them special. When we
we talk about mosses, we're talking about our little green friends in the division Bryophyta, which includes about 12,000 species. And it's a division that previously included uh, things like hornworts and liverworts, but is now exclusive just to mosses. So they have their own little uh, niche in, um, in the plant kingdom. Get it, fucking mosses. I know, right? Get your own fucking recognition. It's great. I'm into it. Self-made plants. Um, When you talk about mosses, though, they are not recognized as true plants. And I'm using air quotes, you know, true plants. And that is because mosses are non-vascular, meaning that they do not have the, the xylem, phloem and the other vessels that uh, transport water and nutrients around other plants. They don't have a proper root system. Instead, they are anchored into their substrate by these little thread-like filament rhizoids uh, that have a limited amount of water conduction, but are really more or less just there just to keep the plant in place. And mm. I know what your next question is going to be, Frankie. <laughs> you can read it on my face. I can read it all over you. Well, if they don't have roots, then how in the heck do these plants get uh, water and nutrients that they need? And they have a kind of cool way of doing that. And that the uh, leaves, and again, I'm using kind of air quotes, um, the leaves of mosses are only one cell thick. And so they are able to absorb what they need directly from the air. How Wait, cool. hold the fuck on. The leaves of a moss are one cell one thick. One cell thick. Yes. So That's fucking wild. Question. We did a whole series on epiphytes. They're not an epiphyte though, correct? They can be epiphytic. There are, like I said, 12,000 species of mosses in the world today. So many of them are epiphytic. Uh, Interestingly, none of them are parasitic to trees, but many of them can be epiphytic. So in the long run, kind of similar to when we did have our episode about epiphytes, how orchids... Because to label something as an epiphyte is to label what substrate it grows upon. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to orchids where you have orchids that do grow in the ground and root in the ground exclusively. And those are obviously not epiphytic, but the lion's share of orchids are epiphytic because they tend to grow in tree canopies. Uh, And I think uh, I know one of y'all talked about uh, Spanish moss. Yeah, that was me. (laughs) Yeah, which is, you know, not actually a moss. It's a bromeliad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it makes you kind of wonder if people didn't associate that with a true moss because of its epiphytic nature. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder. Makes you wonder. <laughs> but the... Plants are fascinating. They really are. <laughs> they really are. The other big way that mosses differ from, uh, again, using air quotes, the true plants... Vascular plants, I guess I should say, is in their life cycle. And that mosses are dominated by a haploid stage 
in their life cycle rather than a diploid stage. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, get too much into the, uh, you, the, the genetics that goes into that because I find it pretty fucking boring, but <laughs> it is kind of interesting. Uh, it, it, it's interesting when you think about the cultivation and the propagation of mosses. So for a sea plant, for example, you know, let's just say an oak tree, um, you know, you think of, you know, the acorn being planted and then it sprouts into a seedling and then it grows up into a big mighty tree. Well, those are all diploid uh, life stages, which means that the cells have two sets of chromosomes. And then you have uh, the, the, the male flower and the female flower and the pollen, which is a haploid stage, meets the egg, which is another haploid stage. And those combine to form another diploid acorn that falls down into the ground and sprouts into another oak tree. And that's the way that the cycle goes on. Well, mosses are not like that at all. They're almost the exact opposite. Um, a moss germinates from a spore. So it is a uh, spore plant. There's a bunch of them out there. Again, a lot of the warts, ferns. And that germinates into uh, what is called a protonema, which is just kind of like this green fuzz, sort of, uh, uh, you know, just a bunch of green filaments. It almost looks like felt that grows on whatever substrate it happens to grow on. Um, and that can be uh, damp soil, bare rock, um, concrete, uh, tree bark, um, almost any substance that is stable and can hold the plant in place. And that transitions into what's called a gametospore, which is, you can kind of think of as the sort of vegetative maturation stage of a moss where it is growing up and getting ready to reproduce. But if, if we're going back to the analogy of like an oak tree, you know, the tree is a diploid stage. All this happens in a haploid stage. And on this gametophyte stage is when the plant starts to grow its sex organs. And those are usually a male and a female counterpart. They can either be monoecious or dioecious, but they're separate, separate parts. And then the sperm from the male parts will fertilize the female parts, just like we learned in uh, health class when we were all in sixth grade. And <laughs> that is actually the only diploid stage that occurs in a moss's life cycle. Because that, that zygote grows in, up into a long stalk with a capsule at the end. And that is where the spores are produced, which are produced by meiosis instead of mitosis. So it goes back to a haploid stage. Hmm. Yeah, and I know that's a, that's all kind of boring stuff. And if if it sounds the science is never boring, I love a nice science segment. It's perfect. I'm into it. Oh, I hated that. <laughs> I hated learning about the different cell stages. But yeah, the important takeaway is that. Um, it is 
dominated by a haploid stage in its life cycle rather than a diploid stage. And if that sounds really alien and primitive... A little. It's because it is. <laughs> uh, you know, well, I guess we shouldn't say primitive. You know, the, the, you know, the science community is going to using the term relictual rather than primitive. What does that mean? Uh, it means that it is... It means that it's old. <laughs> Essentially like a more ancient way of looking at things. Because mosses, right, yeah, mosses and ferns and a lot of that, of, of these, it's haploids, right? Yes. A lot of these plants that propagate themselves through this haploid stage are some of the oldest plants to be documented throughout time. So it's just an older way of getting things done as opposed to a lot of the plants that we see today that do flower mm -hmm. and propagate in that way are realistically a lot younger. Gotcha. Over like in, in a timeline as in general, you know? Yeah, there yeah. is fossil record of mosses going back to 400 million years ago. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, that, that predates the dinosaurs by quite a bit of time. So, you know, we're talking about... I just want everybody also out there listening right now to know how angry Zach's cat is right now. <laughs> Zach's cat is very mad. He is not having this being kicked off the tabletop five times already. Bit he very much wants to be part house. of this podcast. I am talking to y'all and fighting my cat at the same time. It's a great time. We're talking about moss fighting cats. Welcome to Propagated Podcast. It's, it's glorious. If this isn't what you wanted to hear, I'm sorry. You're doing something wrong. This is amazing. <laughs> But like I was saying, you know, the, the, this life cycle of mosses is very different than what we would think of for the life, uh, life cycle of um, a, a, a typical plant. I guess an angiosperm or a gymnosperm, you know, a vascular plant. It's very different from mosses. They live in a totally different world. And because they don't have flowers, um, they need water in order to be fertilized. Uh, which this is actually a fun little bit. Uh, mosses actually have motile sperm. Wait, motile. what? <laughs> yeah. Define that. I'm sorry. I'm not. The, the sperm yeah. swim. They have sperm that swim. Oh, interesting. Which you don't usually see in, uh, in, plants. in, in plants. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. The only other plants that I can think of off the top of my head that have motile sperm are some cycads in uh, ginkgo 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 yeah ginkgo, ginkgo has motile sperm yeah <laughs> but it, yeah it kind of goes into i mean the ginkgo is also an ancient relictual plant um so god i love that word i'm just like super it's, it's into that word relictual is such a relictual, fucking cool yeah. word uh, yeah, because Oof. primitive, I think, has kind of a negative connotation to it. You know, if you're primitive, mm -hmm. you've, you are seen as less inferior. Um, whereas, you know, in the scientific community, there isn't any judgment, especially I mean, in evolution. There's unfortunately, no an enormous amount of the English language and idioms boils down to racist terms, which is <laughs> really <laughs> rough, but is. that's just real realistic. Um, yeah. Uh, where was I? Mm. So mosses need water to fertilize. The, the spores themselves are dispersed mostly by wind, but 
they need water in order to fertilize, which is, you know, kind of, again, you know, sort of a throwback to a long gone era of plants. You often hear that mosses prefer damp, shaded areas. And that's one of the big reasons why is because they need water in their environment, at least some of the time in order to reproduce. Uh, they, they actually, uh, they have little, uh, little vegetative offshoots called gammy as well that um, uh, they, they, they break off of the plant themselves, the gametospore, <laughs> to, to bring that term back. They break off of the gametospore and those can be used for vegetative, re, uh, for vegetative propagation. Propagation. I know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're cute. They're, they're just these little tiny little uh, green offshoots of the plant. Yeah, they break off and then they fall down and yeah, they form a whole new plant. But anyway, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you often hear that you know mosses require um, shaded plant, uh, shaded areas, damp areas, but they're totally ubiquitous. They grow in almost every environment in the world. They can grow underwater or in waterlogged areas. Some species are even adapted to grow on stabilized sand dunes. Uh, cool. They use, yeah, they'll use the sand as their substrate. There are even species that grow in Antarctica, which is crazy because there are only uh, like two species of uh, uh, vascular plants in Antarctica, but there's uh, several, several species of mosses that grow there. That's so cool. I know, right? Wait, sorry. There's several species of moss that grow in Antarctica. In Antarctica, that's yeah. so dope. Yeah, pretty cool. And uh, one of the one of the things that I love about mosses is they thrive in urban environments, which makes them incredibly useful for uh, urban ecology. Despite all that, there's not a whole lot of actual moss cultivation that happens. Um, the earliest known records of moss cultivation go back about a thousand years to, uh, uh, to Japan in uh, Zen Buddhist temples, which, uh, you know, when you think about it, it kind of makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, when I look at a moss covered area, you know, you kind of have this, um, uh, this very serene sort of calm feeling. Yeah, I was going to talk about how when I was a kid, we used to go, I lived right next, well, my grandparents lived right next to this creek. And one of my favorite things ever was like, we had like, you know, like little mini waterfalls where water rolls over mm -hmm. a rock and you'd have moss growing on those. And it was almost like having a chair to sit on. So you could like mm -hmm. sit in these little mini waterfalls and have the moss and it felt like a cushion. Yeah, absolutely. and they have like little air bubbles in them, so like little air bubbles rush over you when you sit down on them. And moss, just as I mean, I've always looked at moss in this kind of like peaceful, beautiful little yeah addition to whatever it's at. You know, like it's I, I think, think it looks really cool. Kind plant. of make that uh, that psychological attachment to uh, moss, and that it's just you get a a sort of like. A, attachment to antiquity you know it, it's it's an old ancient place that you're in when you look at a moss covered area and so yeah when you when you think about that it makes a lot of sense that 
the uh, Zen Buddhist monks would enjoy cultivating this plant. And even today, the temple gardens of the Saihoji Temple in Kyoto are famous for their moss gardens. Ooh, I want to go there. I know, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Let's go. (laughs) The pictures of it, I've never, uh, I've never been privileged to go to Kyoto, but the pictures of it are breathtaking. But uh, yeah, outside of that, there's not a whole lot of record of uh, moss cultivation and in civilization. Um, there was like a little blip of time in the 19th century in England and America where um, uh, mosseries kind of became like an in vogue sort of thing to have. Um, and that's, you know, literally just like a you know, three walled Adirondack style structure with, uh, yeah, with slatted wood uh, walls. Why don't we still have this? I know, right? I was, I was reading about <laughs> so these and this. just thinking, man, how much do I want to build one of these? Right. That sounds amazing. Uh, but yeah, people would, uh, you know, put samples of mosses in there and then uh, uh, would present them to their guests. And it was a whole thing. And I just, I love that idea. I love yeah, that idea. Yeah, that's awesome. Can we bring that back? Let's just do this. I feel like that's the thing. I mean, we're, we're bringing it back. Just so you know, mosseries are, right, right are back. Right now. We brought it back. <laughs> as long as they're, like, taken care of. I feel like mosses, I don't know. Are they picky? I feel like it's like any other plant. It depends. Like there's some philodendrons that I grow in my room that are like the easiest motherfuckers don't require hardly anything, but the random waterings I give it. And then there are other types of philodendron that are like, if you look at me the wrong way, I'm going to wilt and die and never pay you any attention again. I hate you forever. I feel like mosses have to be the same way. There's 12,000 different kinds. Yeah. I've always looked at mosses as very specialized to their, um, to their environment. You know that all the all the various species and that some species are going to grow really well in a certain environment, but will absolutely fail and die dramatically in any other kind of environment. They're they're kind of they're 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 surging in popularity right now in the Pacific Northwest, which I think is really cool. Um, because unfortunately, mosses I feel like are viewed as kind of weeds. And uh, the grass lawns of of modern civilization, which I think is one of the weirdest trends. Can I just talk about Ugh. this for a second? Oh my god, we're the, gonna have a whole episode yes. on it. Yeah, the we're gonna grass have a whole lawn monoculture is such a yeah, weird thing that it's needs so to weird. just go away and die. I just I, also fuck the French because they were one of the first people trying to like push their clout and be like. Look at my yard. I can fucking grow grass in it and keep right, it cut. Yeah. You all poor yeah. bitches can't afford that shit. <laughs> which, Anyways, which again, I can only imagine we'll means episode. I have people that do that for exactly. Me. It's and all about where <laughs> that leads to. But yeah, if, if you're listening out there, please get rid of the idea that you know a well manicured lawn is what you are going for. Grow more species. Biodiversity it's is so outdated. In monoculture. I feel like if you're, li- if you're listening to us regularly at this point and like keeping up with us, then you're probably going to have that cottage core vibe going anyways. Who doesn't <laughs> want a cute little like cottage core interest to your house, right? Like mm-hmm. some nice oh, tall yeah. grasses growing here and there, some beautiful native plants growing behind those, and then some edible native plants growing behind that, and a whole sustainable 
bit at the front of your house makes so much more sense than ugly ass grass that you have to fucking cut. Also, I'm super biased because I absolutely despise <laughs> mowing yeah. my lawn. Yeah. I mean, cut grass gets you nothing. It doesn't get you food. It doesn't get the bees shit. It doesn't like, it doesn't get, it doesn't benefit anyone. It's like mowed grass makes zero sense in any ecological. No, level. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a 100% keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality that yeah. I wish, uh, I'm, I'm glad that people are finally starting to wake up to and hopefully yeah. within the next generation will be gone for good. Let's get to yeah. more uh, native, sustainable, and useful landscapes here, people. In the Northwest, which is you know a cloudy, damp environment, uh, people are really uh, the the idea of moss lawns are taking hold, where you know people allow the mosses to take over instead of grass, mm-hmm. it, which is great. You know they're, they're they're native plants; they're low maintenance. And, uh, and also just incredibly beautiful. And, and it's like walking over a warm, fuzzy blanket. Well, maybe not yeah, warm. Yeah, it is. But you it's know, like it's... walking over a fuzzy blanket. They're way, it's way more nice to walk on moss than it is on grass. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I do know, though, personally, I know that like if it doesn't naturally grow there, you can't make it grow there, and the moss is not going to be happy, which you already kind of talked about a little bit. Right. But yeah. if it does naturally grow there, just fucking let it grow. Yeah, moss is I've, great. I've, <laughs> I've been dealing with that, uh, like I said, all, all summer long, you know, trying to, you know, experimenting with different mosses. And trust me, if it doesn't want to grow there, it's not going to grow there. But um, yeah, there's there's actually a, a park in Washington State uh, called the Bloedel Reserve. And they have these uh, amazing, beautiful moss gardens that, um, again, I, I haven't had the privilege to visit yet, but the, the pictures of them are just, uh, they're absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's the kind of picture that you look at and immediately think, man, that would make a great screensaver. And <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope that I get to visit there soon. And uh, yeah, so Pacific Northwest, y'all are doing great. Keep up with those mosses. Uh, but the uh, society's neglect of uh, seeing the ornamental value of mosses notwithstanding, mosses have historically been incredibly useful and even today have uh, high commercial value. Um, you were talking just a little bit ago about you know walking on a moss ground and it feeling springy and soft. And mosses have an in, they have incredible insulating and water absorbing properties to them that have made them useful throughout history. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like since they just kind of exist on whatever substrate they are going to be on, and the fact that their roots don't really plunge into the earth that much, mm-hmm. they can't be that. They it sounds like they're not going to be damaging to the soil at all. Like, a no. lot of things that you try and grow, especially non-native species, are going to eventually end up damaging your soil. And it sounds like moss just does not have that issue, which is kind of really just cool, hangs. too. Yeah, they, you know, they, they, they evolved in these environments, which means that, you know, they've learned to work in those e- ecosystems. And in uh, particularly in a lot of the uh, boreal forests, um, mosses actually form a symbiotic relationship with um, cyanobacteria, like you were talking about earlier with the uh, uh, legumes, and become nitrogen fixers. Nice. That's yeah. Awesome. So you know, they, cool. Yeah, which is really fucking cool. 
you know so yeah just i mean good on you mosses good on you man way to be where was it oh yeah uh you know it, it, as insulators um laplanders uh native american tribes in north america um uh nordic people russia you know they, they all used moss um on their dwellings to insulate you know and think of a you know a log cabin you would have a little bit of space in between your logs there and a lot of these people would take dried mosses and fill in those areas in order to uh, keep out the drafts and keep in some of the heat uh, but they would also put mosses in their clothing for insulation as well in their mittens and their boots there's a story of uh, Oopsie the Iceman, which is like a, a 5,000 year old yeah, mummy that super was found. Mummy. Super famous mummy. He was found uh, on the, um, in the Austrian Italian Alps. And he was found with uh, moss in his boots. No way. Because it stands it, to reason. Yeah, because it cushions and it helps insulate. So, and that was 5,000 years ago, you know, so. Yeah, you're talking about it. You know, people have been using mosses for a really long time. Old socks. And it uh, has uh, yeah, old socks. Yeah. <laughs> Nature's oldest socks. <laughs> Relictual socks. Does that work? I don't know. Relictual socks. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. In addition to uh, being a good insulator, mosses uh, also absorb water and hold on to water. And, you know, that has been used medically throughout history um you know anything to uh, uh addressing wounds to diapers to uh, um, uh, uh even um absorbing uh, uh blood during a woman's menstrual cycle that makes uh, sense so yeah again you know hmm. yeah and uh that was used even as as early as world war one uh you know Field medics in World War One would use uh, mosses to dress wounds and to try to stem bleeding uh, yeah. from Pack wounded wound soldiers. With that shit. It makes Absolutely, sense. interesting. You know, use what is available to you. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, commercially, um, you know, uh, especially with uh, sphagnum mosses, uh, sphagnum mosses are particularly valuable commercially. Um, they're often a component of uh, a, a peat moss, and peat moss is horticulturally, you know, they're used as soil additives, you know, all the time, huh. and uh, they're also used as a fuel source. Uh, and peat moss is used as a smoking malt in the production of Scotch whiskey. I love peat so, Scotch. It's one of my yeah, favorites. Scotch, I think, is absolutely terrible, but if you're a Scotch drinker, then you owe a lot to mosses. Oh, I love Scotch. I love anything that tastes like fire. Oh, I cannot <laughs> stand Scotch. I'm not a huge smoky Scotch person. I am 150% a PT Scotch person. I like that earthy, natural, almost like dusty, dirty flavored yeah. Scotch. To me, it I'm is so like taking it. a shot of whiskey out of an ashtray. I have a question. Yes, Frankie. Peat moss. Is that any mm -hmm. relation to peat bogs? Yes. Yeah, that literally. Is, yeah, that's... yeah, those are uh, one and the same. Um, 
you know, like I was saying earlier, uh, mosses can grow in incredibly waterlogged areas and in uh, bogs uh, uh, in northern uh, British Isles and Ireland in particular. Um, you know, that makes up a large portion of that landscape and mosses grow incredibly well there. And when they die, they decay and form this incredibly dense sort of organic matter. Cool. So yeah, peat moss grows and peat bogs. Those are, you know, kind of one and the same. Give me that detritus flavored whiskey all <laughs> day. Love it. Detritus is my favorite. <laughs> I'm fascinated by peat bogs, like in the way that they preserve bodies and all that, like fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Me. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 a, there's a ton that you can say about mosses. You know, even in the field of biotechnology, on the cutting edge of science, um, you know, mosses are 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 contributing. Um, there's a, a species of moss, uh, Psychometrella patens, that has. Oh wait, wait, the, the, what? Psychometrella patten. God, see, I'm just annoyed because I feel like Zach is over here killing all of these words, and every time we try and <laughs> I do know, it, he just knows just how like, to say I'm them. sorry, guys, we're gonna do this wrong, and you're just gonna I'm have sure to I'm deal with saying that. And Zach's just over here like psychometrella patents, <laughs> like fucking sending it. Fuck. I'm sure I'm probably butchering. Hey, that. subscribe to our Patreon so we can take fucking botany one right frankie and i are going to use your money exclusively to go back to school for botany to be better for you i promise i mean yeah probably <laughs> yeah this uh this this uh species of moss psychometrilla patents has the uh has the ability to repair its own dna uh when it's been damaged uh by you know whatever uh, you know genetic mutation uh sun damage whatever yeah it has the ability That's to repair its own dna which is fucking wild which is insane you know when you think about it. when you think about the um, yeah. the implications of that with uh, um a crop production and human health then um you know it's 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 pretty profound but yeah, you know, mosses are, uh, you know, these these hardy, useful little plants that are finally kind of starting to get the recognition that they deserve in the world, uh, instead of just kind of being the the easy to ignore thing that you walk all over. Um, and coming from a horticultural background, you know, we often look at the ornamental value of, of, of a plant, you know, how pretty it is. And, uh, you know, I think that mosses certainly have their own austere beauty, but, um, you know, they certainly have a lot more use to the world outside of that. Green roofs are becoming a huge trend. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think urban environments in general, um, you know, we kind of have this new ecosystem of the urban environment. And I know a lot of people aren't really comfortable with thinking of urban environments environments like that as a as a growing ecosystem that is evolving in real time in our modern world but they are and mm -hmm. mosses have have a place in that um you know green building is huge right now it's blowing up and thank god um uh, you know with green roofs mosses are great for green roofs um they require very little substrate they're lightweight they're easy to maintain they're low maintenance they also wick water that they don't need. Which they is wick cool. water that they don't need. Absolutely. And um, uh, London, a couple years ago, um, started uh, this campaign 
of um, building benches that have uh, this, um, and they're, 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 they're cool looking little benches, but they have this wall of mosses that goes up behind them. And the idea behind these is that uh, this wall of mosses is able to absorb the pollutants from the air that would normally take hundreds of trees to absorb. And so they can take hmm. those pollutants out of the air, sequester them, and make our urban environments more livable. So I think that there's a big future yeah, for mosses. Yeah, I would love that. I love mosses. Fuck yeah, yeah. moss. Fuck yeah, mosses. Fuck yeah, Get moss. Get moss into it. Girl, you're great, you're green, you're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, hot damn. Let's get the third hour of this shit rolling. <laughs> oh my god. Here we go. Hi, welcome back. Welcome back to Propagated Podcast. <laughs> it's me, Frankie. It's your girl, Frankie. Today we're going to talk about something. I mean, I'm going to talk about something. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about something that I think is super magical and super awesome because science literally can't explain it at this point in time. Not saying it can't be explained in the future, but as of right now, we have no idea, and I think that is fascinating. What the fuck? So we are going to talk about masting, also known as mast seeding. Mm. Are either of y'all familiar with that? I'm not personally i've heard the term but i can't wait to find out more cool yay okay so i am reading this amazing book and i know every book i talk about on this show i describe as amazing that's because they all are and they're all my favorites <laughs> braiding sweetgrass by robin wall kimmerer is like everything my heart needed and i didn't know it needed it is such a good book and she talks about in the beginning a little bit about mast seeding and at first I was like, I don't know what that is. I got to look that up. And the second I researched it, I was like, this is my next episode. I love this. This is so cool. So we're going to talk about it. <laughs> there are two different kinds of masting. There's hard masting and soft masting. So hard masting is related to things like oak, hickory, birch seeds, that sort of thing. Whereas soft is raspberries, blueberries, kind of fruity stuff, but we're going to specifically hone in on hard masting, which is predominantly wind pollinated trees. So the old English word, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it first, and then we're going to talk about the who, what, why sort of hypotheses behind it. But the old English maced is the origin of the word masting. And maced means the nuts of forest trees, specifically pigs, like things that would feed the pigs, mm. like acorns or beech nuts, that sort of thing that lays on the forest floor and the pigs run around eating and getting fat off of. These are nut trees that don't crop every year. So masting basically is like these huge boom and bust cycles. So these bumper crops where all of a sudden all of these trees are just 
sending out all of these nuts all at once, every single tree in every single grove in an entire state. And no one knows why or how or what exactly, but it just happens all at once, which I think is so magical. That's so, crazy. <laughs> so basically to produce nuts, it takes a huge high caloric value. And these trees store the sugar as starch in their roots for years and years and years. And if they were to just like produce a couple nuts every single year, the theory is that like those nuts would just immediately get eaten. No trees would grow. Like biologically, that wouldn't be super smart for mm -hmm. the tree to just be like, here's a couple nuts, <laughs> squirrels eat them. You know, that's not how trees right. grow. So they've evolved to a point where they can evolutionarily survive beyond their predators. And metabolically, it would totally. be too expensive to uh, uh, send out a flush, a full flush of uh, mast every single year. Wow, crazy. So there are a few hypotheses as to why trees do mast fruiting. And then we'll talk about the hypotheses of how. So why? Forest ecologists think that it's an energetic equation. You make fruit when you can afford to make fruit. So basically, these trees grow and they accumulate starch at different rates. And uh, the kind of issue with that is that trees grow in different habitats and at different rates. So like, depending on the more sun a tree is getting, it's going to accumulate more starch. So it doesn't really make sense that all of these trees would do this thing all at once if they're all in different habitats having different things happen, right. you know? They're doing this thing as a collective, so why is it happening as a collective? Forest scientists think that it's the predator satiation hypothesis, which basically boils down to when you produce an abundance of nuts, it's going to overflow the predators, which in this metaphor will use squirrels. So these squirrels gather up all these nuts and they have these full hordes and some escape because they're so full that they become trees. So all of the trees are putting up nuts and the squirrels are like, oh my God, there's so many nuts. I don't know what to do. That's exactly how I imagine squirrel voices too. <laughs> yeah, oh thank you. God. Thank you so much. As you know, I'm a professional voice actor for squirrels. And, <laughs> and so they're eating all these nuts and some of them escape and some of them become trees. And as these squirrels are eating all of these nuts, they get super pregnant they have super many squirrel babies and then these squirrel babies feed the foxes and the hawks and then the hawks and the foxes population booms and then a couple of years go by and all of a sudden you know the nut hordes have run out everybody's hungry these squirrels are going farther and farther out to try to you know feed their babies and feed themselves and they just aren't getting anything and they're just becoming prey and so these trees are like, oh, okay, all right, cool. There's less predators now. We're going to have another boom crop. We're going to feed this again and like start this economy, hmm. quote unquote, over. Wow. So that's, that's I mean, that theory. It's a very interesting theory yeah. for sure. It almost, it, it, yeah. it, it paints, uh, um, it paints ecology in this almost sort of, uh, you know, metaphysical sense of. Uh, totally. You know, there's there's some kind of 
you know, underlying intelligence behind it, which, you know, again, we could argue about that for hours and hours and hours. Well, that's the thing about plants, too, is that, like, we constantly try to relate them to our minimalistic senses, and plants Mm -hmm. are on a whole different level. They don't speak the way that we speak. And so, uh, I don't know, I have a problem sometimes with science trying to translate these plants into human speech when it's like, let's just listen to how they talk. (laughs) Right, it's it's a whole entirely different world, obviously. Like, But they do communicate, which I've have been learning more about recently is the fact that plants do have a system of communication which is pretty fucking in intricate and wild honestly Absolutely. But, yeah. totally totally and it's like it's beyond a lot of our scientific measurements at this point which we might get there but anyway we'll talk about that but there's another hypothesis that um it's all about pollination efficiency So basically, this theory is about if all of these trees, which most of which are wind-pollinated already, if they all bloom at the same time, they will all pollinate at the same time, which makes it very efficient, and it kind of optimizes that pollination sort of symbiosis. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, each of these theories kind of speak to the fact that plants have to communicate with each other to be able to do this. Right. Yes. Yeah. I think 100%. a lot of people don't recognize or talk about the fact that plants do communicate consistently with each other. Totally. Mm-hmm. And are able to sense their environment in ways that seem completely alien to us, but we know that they are able to. Yeah, and that's like I personally believe that it's not like one or the other. The more I read about like how and why, I'm like, yes, it's all of it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I feel like all of these make sense and they can all coexist together. Exactly. But I mean, it's like anyways. the whole column A, column B bit, right? Like, just yeah, because you exactly. have a bunch of different theories that are all separate from each other doesn't mean that each of those theories can't have some truth behind them, you know? Totally. That's kind of the magic behind it, too, is it's like, we don't know. Like, this is beyond us, and that's mm-hmm. already cool. <laughs> like, I don't know. So these are the theories about how this masting happens. So one of the theories is that it's triggered by this rainfall in the spring and this long-growing season. So the combination of this, like, big rainfall in the spring plus this long-growing season, which doesn't have a whole lot of evidence backing it but it it makes sense like yes okay so your rainfall is bringing you more to help you grow more and then you have this long growing season so yeah like you know you have this abundance why wouldn't you then do this but again it's like every single tree is doing this at the same time regardless of habitat regardless of rainfall regardless of its season that's wild yeah. It, 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 I mean, you can justify it any way you want to, but none of the theories that they have really account for the fact that every single tree is doing this at the same in the same season, like in the same time frame. Totally. It's kind of, I in my head that just doesn't click. I like mm-hmm. can't make that make in, like a good amount of sense in my head right now. Well, maybe I have two hypotheses for you that might make it click. 
There's one that's above ground and one that's above underground. Ground. As above, so below. Let's get at it. As above, so below. So we'll start with above. There is a lot of compelling evidence that trees talk to each other via pheromones. And most of this is communicated on the wind. Scientists have identified specific stress compounds when under attack. So I, as I was reading this in Braiding Sweetgrass, which by the way, read it. It's oh so good. <laughs> but she specifically mentioned the G-moth. And she was like, they have identified that when plants are attacked by the G-moth, which we talk about in our second episode, that trees downwind will respond to the pheromones of the trees under attack and they will start upping their defenses immediately after responding to this alert. That's fascinating. Again, just so fucking intricate and wild. Like, what literally the fuck? Just pheromones blowing on the wind are the catalyst for a huge, like, growth season. Or not not growth season, but reproductive season. It's insane. It's wild. Well, I mean, Robin Wall Kimmer talks about it a little bit in terms of, you know, if the wind can be trusted to pollinate these trees, why wouldn't they be trusted right. to send messages? Fair. That's, That's kinda, fair. That totally makes sense. I was uh, thinking about that earlier when you were talking about one of the hypotheses um, about the, you know, the, the wind affecting the reproductive cycle of these trees then yeah, it would make sense that there would be messages that were carried along via wind. Totally. Y'all want to hear about underground? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Always love We're going back to mushrooms. <laughs> Give me that mycology into it. <laughs> so, there is also evidence of an underground interconnected mycorrhiz. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Zach, help me. Mycorrhiza. Uh, mycorrhizal. Interconnected mycorrhiza fungal strands in the roots of trees. Basically, these fungal strands trade trees mineral nutrients for carbohydrates, and they connect these huge swaths of trees. So basically these mushrooms or these fungi act like Robin Hood and they steal these carbohydrates from these trees that are getting all of the sun and all of the water and they give it to trees that don't have as much. And so all of these trees are able to have this huge boom at once because these fungal strands are trading them carbohydrates. And these fungal strands exist in every habitat of these trees. Mm -hmm. What fucking crazy nonsense is that i mean honestly like (laughs) how the fuck does that exist how the fuck is that a real thing and again i'm going to sit here and say as above so below again because i think that it's probably column a and column b it i mean to me it just makes sense that all of this plays into itself and plays together to make this whole mass seeding event happen totally i think that when we focus on the when, the why, the how, we, ans- we focus on this answer in this question and we completely disregard the conversation. And I think plants and trees, from what I've learned at least, they speak in conversations. They don't speak in, oh yeah, I did this because mm-hmm. this, you know? 
<laughs> it just doesn't make yeah, sense and, to me. Uh, you know, we I think we as humans tend to um, want to apply these incredibly mystical, metaphysical qualities to the natural world around us and forget the fact that, you know, these are incredibly complex systems that have co-evolved totally. over hundreds of millions and sometimes billions of years and totally. we're here long before we were here and we'll mm-hmm. let's be honest we'll be here long after we are gone and that just because we don't yet understand them doesn't make them magic exactly and, this, and think about it when you look at a lot of the theoretical work being done around how plants are able to communicate with each other through electrical impulses between the roots, mm-hmm. especially when you have a community of plants. It's a little bit different with what you're talking about because it happens over different regions and over different habitats. But especially when you're looking at a specific community of plants, it's been hypothesized that there are electrical impulses that allow them to communicate with each other, which is no different than looking at our own fucking brains and the neural ne- networks that exist there and how it's all driven by electrical communication from neuron to neuron is all an electrical pulse, you know? And so if you look at that kind of mm-hmm. scenario and that kind of situation, we don't, we haven't even began to scratch the surface of how our brains mm-hmm. work. Why are we going to look at something that has evolved for literally billions of years longer than our brains have and pretend like we're going to be able to decode that and have a specific answer to it. A vast majority of our problems here right now in this, whatever we're in right now, is that we just think that we're right. Like we cannot Mm. accept that there are other ways of thinking. There are other ways of being. There are other ways of communicating that yeah we just white supremacy needs so badly that it's right that it will fucking bulldoze anything and uh you know the anthropomorph or the anthropocentric view of the universe as well that you know humans are the center of everything is uh, you know mankind Mm -hmm. uh you know i think that takes on a much broader sense in the fact that we have trouble respecting the fact that there are an infinite number of possibilities that life could exist, not only in our world, but in uh, you know the universe broad. And that we refuse to kind of see the amazing diversity of existence that exists in our own backyard. Yeah, just in the smallest swath of land. There's more biodiversity mm-hmm. there than you would ever even consider to look at. And it's wild. That's one of the things that I love the most about mm-hmm. talking about plants and doing this podcast is the little bit of perspective that I've gained just over what this is the eighth episode. In eight in eight yeah. episodes time, yeah. I have gained perspective into plants that I didn't that I would have never even gone out of my way to look for like talk about fucking apples god damn frankie you fucked me up in the apple episode i was like what i the know fuck i never knew well. i had no idea the apples were fucking wild like this yeah. you know i no, remember I, I know you know 
in, here in Western North Carolina, you hear about mass years a lot as it pertains to bear population. You know, you hear, uh, mm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. we had a big mass year uh, two or three years ago. So you can expect to see a lot more bears in your backyard. I had two cubs. Oh, uh, we have a uh, we have a mom and uh, two cubs that climbed a big uh, maple tree in our front yard. I love it. It's amazing. But yeah, it just goes to show you that, you know, you know, we are a part of our environment. We are not separate from it. 100%. And I think that's like our whole message with all of this is like, we like to pretend that we're outside of this. And it's like, that's the thing is like, I am not a biologist. I'm not a horticulturist, horticulturalist. I really my experience with plants is that I worked with them for many many years but it's it's just like you shouldn't have to be to understand that the world outside of your door is just as important as whatever is going on inside your house like mm. whatever's yeah, going inside absolutely. your head whatever's going on inside your work especially <laughs> because the world outside <laughs> is equal <laughs> like 100%. Stop separating yourselves from whatever is going on because you can't. You can't. We're all interconnected. Yeah. I would even say to call it equal might be overstepping. I think that the world outside is by and far more important than our day-to-day lives and we just don't put any stock in that. But again, I don't I don't think you can think of them as two separate things, you know. I mean, our day-to-day lives are important in that they do have an impact on the environment around us you know again you know we tend to think of those things as being two separate things but they are very 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 much interconnected totally so there are some positives and negatives i mean with anything if we're looking like short term when this mast seeding and masting happens the for instance, the white-footed mouse population shoots drastically upwards. They're huge carriers for Lyme disease and ticks. Hmm. Gross AF. So whenever you see these huge masting events, we also notice an uptick in Lyme disease. But we notice a downtick in things like the G-moth, for instance, because the white-footed mouse is a huge predator for the G-moth. That we talked about in episode two there is as there you know it's like this weird ecological balance of like the white-footed mouse population goes up lyme disease goes up which sucks gmals go down we do know that in mast years it takes so much energy to mast that tree rings are affected by it hmm. and you can see when you dissect a tree its tree rings are thinning on mast years because it has so much energy it's putting towards, you know, turning starch into sugars, into carbohydrates, into outwardly. Yeah. Yeah. Its growth is quote unquote stunted, but its energy is focused elsewhere. Hmm. And finally, lately, the biggest study of masting has been centered around global warming or climate change and its effects on masting. In the last century, 
it has been scientifically recorded that the intensity and the frequency of masting has been increased. No one knows why. No one knows the drivers. Here's where we are. Hmm. Wow. Damn. Way to get us all up in our heads, Frankie. Got right. to <laughs> put some thought into this one. Once again, we are not separated. We are not separate from whatever is happening. Like, yeah, we, we are, are a part of all of this. We affect it. It affects us. That's it. I, I think that was the perfect way to summarize it is here is where we are. Here's where we are. This was this episode. Here's where we are. <laughs> I do think that it's going to be interesting to watch the next few years play out ecologically, I mean. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a very curious time to see how our regions respond to what we're doing to them, honestly. Mm-hmm. We're in a time where we're going to have to sit down and assess all the damage that we've done. And that is part of that is looking at a time frame that is well beyond our own years. Absolutely. I think 100%. personally that it is going to hit hard in the coming years within my lifetime. I think I'm going to see some significant ecological and climate change that will change the face of how things mm-hmm. operate right now. I think that I will live through that. I don't Definitely. think I'm going to Agreed. see the death of humanity, but I think that that is something that could easily happen if we don't sit down and look at the future more analytically and more forward thinking than anybody is doing right now. Totally. I personally believe that there is no future without the green environment around us being equal. Mm its needs being equal to our mm-hmm. needs call me radical whatever i don't i don't see on this green spaceship that we live in hurtling through an ever expanding space i don't see us surviving without working with what's around us i with each other with the plants around us with whatever we're eating whatever we're producing mm-hmm. whatever we're scheduling our days as like what we're doing right now isn't working, hasn't been working, and is harmful to so many people and so many yeah. things. My yeah, biggest gosh. concern is that it's not a concern for your average layperson. And it should be, but it just really isn't because it's not it's not framed palatable. in a way that is yeah, palatable, it's not palatable. You know? And and that's yeah. fucking really dangerous and it makes me really nervous. About it's the reality really of the future of humanity, because I honestly feel like what we're—I feel like within our lifetimes, we're looking at at whether or not we begin to work hard enough to reverse the damage that we're doing. And if we don't do that in our lifetimes, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of humanity left. And you know, I got all the faith in Earth. No, no. All this shit's going to live, or it's going to bounce back to life, but it's going to be without us. The trees will mast fucking fruit and they'll be fine. <laughs> Can't even fucking blame them, right? Like Honestly, though, that's why we do this. Literally, we just said why we do this. Because, like, 
Y'all listening right now might not have the time to research this. Like, I'm not an expert. We're, I mean, Zach has a degree. I'm obviously <laughs> Daniel not an expert and either. I are hobbyists, yeah, I would say. I, I like, I would say we're hobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> but really, the reality is you go Wikipedia level deep into this and you realize how fucking scary this shit is and how close and generational it is and if you are listening to this right now i hope and i probably i know i know that you feel this fear that we're feeling because we can't help but talk about it because this is so important and we need to talk about it so anyway it's literally thank terrifying. you for coming to our podcast hope this was fun <laughs> right. hope you're having the best time of your I love, life i love how frankie and most i likely be dead in the morning literally frankie and i in our initial talks tequila is dead and frankie and i's initial talks about starting this podcast they were like the most fun light-hearted ideal behind this podcast where we're just gonna you come can't. on and talk about plants and it was going to be cute and fun and sweet and we were going to have a good time and then literally as soon as we start doing actual research for the podcast we're both like well why don't we talk about noxious weeds and why don't we talk about how tequila's (laughs) dying and why don't we talk about how wine almost never existed anymore and why don't we talk about all of these really sad things i mean you get Mm -hmm. one cell level deep like moss. literally one cell away <laughs> one cell away anything that's beautiful plant wise you're one away. cell away from a more heinous yeah. story behind it yeah, one of my uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite writers is uh, EO Wilson and you know just amazing naturalist and I, I would say philosopher but uh, you know he was talking about the just uh, astounding loss of species that we're experiencing in our world and um, you know even if you want to keep it anthrop- anthropocentric, um, you know, those are species that give us a tremendous amount of value right now in, in environmental and commercial value that, you know, perform, uh, you know, thankless jobs for absolutely free for zero dollars. And, you know, we're losing a lot of those right now. And, uh, the the natural world is a tremendous resource that we can draw a lot from uh, with, uh, you know hopefully without harming it but certainly without destroying it and uh, yeah you know right now we're really failing to see that and you know to me you can't burn your house down and expect your coffee maker to work the next morning and uh, you know <laughs> what a I, fucking southern saying. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! <laughs> Can't expect your house to burn down and your coffee waker to work the next morning. God no, damn. it's true. It's I love true, no, It's real. I'm sorry. That just I have never heard you say. Uh, that. Well, you know that's it, that's that's my grandpa coming through in me. But you know, I mean, we are really missing out on the tremendous resource and the tremendous value that we could be drawing from the natural world around us, and are instead. Uh, you know, kind of giving it the middle finger and harming it. Well, here's the thing, though. We're treating it as a commodity instead of a gift. Mm. Yeah. It is When we talk about value, all of a sudden, capitalism is like, oh, how can we fucking reap the benefits of this Mm -hmm. value? Value transcends monetary worth. 
and we just need to relearn yeah, that absolutely. really as a society and for god's sakes for daniel's sake save the tequila yeah for real Save the tequila. Okay, that's it. Goodbye. (laughs) We're wrapping it up. That's it. Save the tequila. Find us. Save the tequila. Hashtag save the tequila on Twitter at propagated pod. Save the tequila Instagram. (laughs) Propagated pod at propagated podcast. And our Gmail is at propagated podcast or at propagated podcast at gmail.com. Sorry. Yeah. Guys, this was a three-hour episode. Yeah, we I'm went way too wasted, late, and I so... feel really bad. All right. Anyways, though, <laughs> sorry. please contact us. We love all of your messages so, 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 so much. We're gathering your questions for a mini episode, so please send us more of those. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having, having me. You. I truly enjoyed sitting here and talking with y'all. Yeah, is there anywhere you want to direct people to you? No. No. <laughs> Love don't it. Come see me. That was the most Zach answer I've ever heard in my life. I don't love come that. see me. Leave me alone. No. I'll, I'll find you. You can find me on this one podcast. Otherwise, you can find me here. Fucked. Do not talk to me. All right, love it. Thank you all so much. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Bye, Bye. guys.